Romans and chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and this morning we're going to read from verse 32 through verse 39. Hebrews chapter 10, commencing to read at verse 32 and reading through the end of the chapter at verse 39. Again, please give your careful attention. This is the Word of God. Hebrews 10 at verse 32. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and, and preserve their souls. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. As a faithful pastor, the author of Hebrews is focused on the concerns of his flock. He is familiar with his readers' strengths and weaknesses, their trials and temptations, their struggles, their difficulties. He knew in particular the threats to their faith. He also knew the events that made up the particular history of this congregation, the things that had happened to them, the things that they had done. Of course, as we have seen throughout this letter, he is particularly concerned that these professing believers do not shrink back and be destroyed. He understood that whatever might happen to them in the Lord's sovereign providence, this mattered more than anything else, that they press on, that they do not shrink back and be destroyed. 
And so as we return to the consecutive exposition of the book of Hebrews this morning and come to this particular passage, verses 32 through 39 of chapter 10, the author here shows a flexible pastoral approach, recognizing that some people need to be challenged, others encouraged, others warned, and others inspired. Lord willing, we are going to take uh, two Sunday mornings to go through uh, this passage. So, for this morning, we make but a beginning, and we're going to do so under two headings. First of all, powerful memory, and then secondly, future receiving. So, powerful memory, and future receiving. So, first of all then, powerful memory in verses 32 through 34. The author of Hebrews knew the great value of historical examples. At the end of chapter 10 here, he turns to the history of this particular congregation. Now, ours is a generation that often thinks that the past and history has little value at best and sometimes considers irrelevant altogether. This is partly because in our own day and generation, we are very self-centered, so we do not particularly care what if anybody else thinks, and if we think that about others around us, we think about it even more of those who are no longer with us. Who cares about what anybody else thought or experienced? To use a very um, common phrase you hear today, it's only ever about me, isn't it? It's all about me. In addition to that, Sadly, sometimes even in the minds of Christians and in the professing church of the Lord Jesus Christ, thinking is shaped in the minds and hearts of believers by the secular ideas of this world that's all around us. In particular, the secular idea of progress. That we know far much more and so we know far much better than those who have ever gone before us. So what value can whatever they thought and did be to us? We think that anything that happened before our own time is, again, at best, inferior to our own day and what we think. C.S. Lewis, in the way that perhaps only Lewis could, called such thinking chronological snobbery, he said. It's chronological snobbery to think in that way, that everything else that was before me in time is inferior to what I think here today. Well, in contrast to our day and generation, the author of Hebrews thought the past was a very important resource for the present. He begins here in verse 32 with this very important word recall or remember. 
Now, the author here does not ask his readers to recall things simply because they're in the past. Just as there can be chronological snobbery with regard to the present versus the past, there can be some sort of chronological snobbery about the good old days. And the past was always better than where it is today. We look back with those somewhat rose-tinted spectacles to those golden days, and weren't they always so much better? That's not what the author is doing. He's saying, look, the past was always better. Just look back there. Indeed, what he seeks to do here is cause them to review, remember, recall, but to do so in such a way to draw the lessons of the past, to draw encouragement from the past, to draw assurance from God's ways with us in the past and with other believers, so that we might be encouraged and strengthened in the present. See, in many ways, it's not the times when things go, when things go well that really define our Christian lives. Many times, perhaps far too often, we just want everything to go well and for life to be good and easy as we think of it. But the really significant times for the believer is often not those kinds of circumstance. There are times of trial and difficulty and even danger. Now, this tells us something about how we should think of those adverse circumstances as we consider them, how we should approach trials and difficulties when they come. Things happen often suddenly. Perhaps you've experienced that even since the new year has turned. Circumstances can change so suddenly, can't they? Even if you can't point to a particular yourself, you don't have to look far in this world to, to think of that. Problems arise, and we simply evaluate that often by thinking something terrible has occurred. What benefit can it be? We just acknowledge its adversity. We think often this way in the face of sickness, don't we? We think this way in the face of death and bereavement. We think this way in the circumstance of economic hardship when we don't have all the physical things that either we once had or the things that we would like to have. And we could multiply the examples, couldn't we? But this passage reminds us that such circumstances, sickness, death, economic adversity, are the occasions to prove faith, to show the genuineness of that which we say with our lips that we believe, to demonstrate the root of faith is in us. And what we were thinking about in our Sunday school hour this morning, that 
genuine fruit of faith in Christian character. It's in these adverse circumstances that we find out that of which our faith is really made. And so in this sense, we should view such trials and difficulties as opportunities to bring glory to God and as those positive challenges to demonstrate, display genuine faith as having been received from God Himself. So, what are we to do when we find ourselves in such circumstances? Well, we should endeavor to mine out, as our forefathers would have said, the treasure in those circumstances. Mine out the treasure today for benefit today, for sure, but also, which is the emphasis of this passage, for benefit in the future. This is what the author does here. He wants his readers to remember what they did in the past in such adverse circumstances through faith, what they had been enabled by God's mercy and grace to do in times of earlier trial, and to remember how sufficient is God's grace. It was then in the past, and it will be now in the present, and it always will be in the future. The sufficiency of God's grace for those who look to Him in trouble, past, present, and future, verses 32 through 34. Notice here the kinds of things that God carried these Christians through by the power they'd received through faith in the Lord. There's a great reality check here. There was a hard struggle. This was not a life of ease for these Christians. It was characterized by suffering. Now, we pause for a moment to be practical here. What is it that Christians fear about suffering? Maybe you've asked yourself that question in the past. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you have and you haven't asked it very recently. And you don't recall what you thought about, meditated on, on that question. So we're going to take a moment or two to think about that this morning. What is it that Christians fear about suffering? Well, yes, there is the immediate suffering itself, whatever that entails, the, the physical difficulty, pain in sickness, uh, pain in the sense of loss in bereavement, um, the hardship to do with economic difficulties, and they are not to be denied or diminished. But that's not all that's involved often for the Christian fearing suffering. Alongside and often greater is the fear that we will fail, that we might give in, that we might turn back, that we might not continue in the faith, in the face of such circumstances. 
Here, these believers learned of God's sustaining grace in the face of a hard struggle. Not that God gave immediate relief here. They had to endure this hard struggle. But God enabled them to do so. He says, you endured, verse 32, in the midst of it. Fighting fears within and fears without, as the hymn writer says, the author assures them, you endured. What did that entail? Well, in these early trials, we're not given all the specifics, but we're given some. They've been subjected to reproach and reflection and affliction. Both by word and action, they'd been persecuted for being believers. Now, we know little of that. We may know some by word here in the West as Christians, but we know little even of that at times. That might not always be so. Don't think that that cannot come to the professing church of the Lord Jesus here in the West as it's come to the professing church of the Lord Jesus in many other parts of the world. We often pray both in our services and our prayer meeting for what we call the persecuted church, those who are suffering reproach and affliction for the sake of Christ. Were we to face that, Do you fear? Do you have any measure of concern, anxiety, worry that in response to such opposition, in response to insults and persecution, that you might not endure? That's what the author here is seeking to address might even result in a denial of the faith. You know, I didn't sign up in Christianity for such persecution. Happy to be a Christian when everybody else around me isn't Christian, and even those who are not are generally tolerant. Or at least the Christians have the upper hand, so those who are not really can't do anything about it. They can't bring reproach and affliction. It's just not possible. They're not in a position to do so. Happy to be a Christian then. But what if in the Lord's sovereign providence that circumstance changes? Maybe even suddenly. Are we concerned that then our faith might not be strong enough? That we would be afraid like Peter even confronted by an insignificant-seeming individual. You are one of them, are you not? Not me. I don't know the man. I know nothing about this Christianity. It's not me. Do we fear that that might be the case? Now, it wasn't so here, was it? God enabled these believers. It wasn't that they in and of themselves were made of different stuff. They were kind of enduring kind of people. They were these kind of rugged individuals who could deal with anything that came across their path. 
It was God who enabled them. And even to be partners with those who were so treated. It wasn't just God enabled them to do so when it came to their door, but they were willing to engage and perhaps experience some of that opposition for the sake of others who were on the front line being partners with those so treated, verse 33. To this, the author adds that some were put in prison. Many had their property confiscated, verse 34. But by faith, these Christians still ministered to those afflicted and even accepted their own losses with joy, the text says. Do you identify with that here? This was the hallmark of the early church. Not merely that they endured affliction. They did do that. Never perfectly, but characteristically, consistently. But they did so exhibiting a joy whilst doing it. Now, brethren, we have to be honest this morning. How so often we might say, well, I am willing to do it. I might even be willing to do it and do it. But do I do it with great joy? Or do I find myself complaining? You know, why do I have to do this? Or worse still, why does God ask me and require me to do this? Why in his, if we pray as we did this morning, praising God for His sovereign providence, why doesn't He just will this circumstance out of the way? He's the God of all power, is He not? So why? And when He doesn't see fit always to tell me that, I have this complaining, resentful spirit. It's costing me to support my brethren. It costs me to go and visit them in prison. I could do something better with that time, right? If I need to support those who find themselves in such circumstances out of my, as I call them, resources or our family resources, that means I don't have access to use that for something I wanted to do. Do we do these things with joy? I think I've told you before, I was thinking about this in the week, that after many years of being in the ministry in one place, um, you often think and are concerned, you use the same illustrations over and over again. Um, I trust I'm not going to weary you with this one again this morning, brethren, but I have a good friend in the ministry. He always would tell his congregation, when asked to serve the Lord with time, with money, with gifts, with talents, whatever it might be in the particulars, the question is not, do I have to? The point is that you get the great opportunity to do so. That the Lord calls us in His great mercy and grace, co-workers with Him. And yet so often it's that way, isn't it? Do I have to? I'd really prefer somebody else did it, and then I don't have to. But we get the opportunity to, and that's what these people did here. One commentator says it very boldly and very bluntly. He says, quote, This is what faith requires. 
If we are not willing to endure affliction or stand with those who are so afflicted, then we simply cannot be Christians, end quote. Now, brethren, if you're anything like me, you probably want to start picking that apart theologically and start saying, well, yeah, but wait a minute. You know, what about this? What about that? I want to sort of bring this in here and you start arguing about how it's expressed. And it's not always inappropriate to do that. We might say, you know, that could be said a slightly better way, nuanced way, rather than a sentence. You could write a whole book to clarify this and that and the other. But, but often the problem is, brethren, if you're anything like me, by the time you've done all of that and got it absolutely right for the author, you've lost the whole point, haven't you? And the, uh, the force with which it comes is just dissipated. So I don't really feel challenged by it at all. So let's pray this morning that we can restrain our editorial inclinations as to how this could be better said, and we feel the force of this. This is what faith requires. If we're not willing to endure affliction or stand with those who are so afflicted, then we simply cannot be Christians, end quote. It is biblical. What did our Lord say? Luke 9, 23 through 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Think of the apostles. In the early days after the resurrection, the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, called them in, demanded that they stop preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. And to drive the lesson home, they flogged them. Now, brethren, I think I'm safe in saying this morning, none of us know what it is to have been flogged. Um, if you do, then you can come and tell me, and I'll correct what I've just said, and I'll say, well, there's somebody who knows what it's like to have been flogged. Um, Jewish flogging, 39 stripes. They did 39 just so they didn't miscount and felt they'd broken the law. It was 40, but they did 39 just to be sure. 39 stripes lashed. We don't know specifically that it was that, um, 39 lashes, but they were flogged by the Jews. How did the apostles respond to that? Did they say, well, you know, Jesus called us to that, so... I guess, you know, I wish I didn't have to be flogged for the sake of Christ. Why doesn't God, you know, bring down fire from heaven and consume the Sanhedrin? Why didn't He do it before we got sent to be flogged? Acts 5.41, they, that is Peter and John, left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That's the right response, isn't it? Rejoicing with joy that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That's what genuine faith accomplishes in the life of the believer. This is the lesson from the past of these very readers of Hebrews that the author is drawing their attention to. Not necessarily to the specifics 
that they were lashed like the apostles, but to the principle. He speaks of their confiscated property, verse 34. You yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one. That's why they didn't resent um, giving of what had been given to them into their stewardship of property for the benefit of others. Think of the Apostle Paul, Romans 8, verse 18. I consider that sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us. What is the great goal for the Christian in such adverse circumstances? It's to stand firm. To use the um, author's words here, it's to endure. It's to not shrink back. As he looks to the past, he said, that is what you did. You endured by God's grace. And therefore, as he comes to the present, he says, therefore, do not shrink back now. What he says to them is what he says to us today. As the Lord has enabled you to stand firm in the past, Christian, brother and sister in Christ, do not shrink back now. Do not turn back today. This is what we're to do. That's the great priority for the Christian and the church. We don't have to win the culture wars of our own day. Nor as Christians and the church are we to expect and presume that we will have great political triumphs in the civil realm, that we are thankful when God so orders it. Our first goal and greatest priority is always to be true to the Lord, to be faithful to Christ in this hostile world. We stand on that solid rock, that foundation that can never move, even in the changing winds of time and space, Christ Himself. And so the author here challenges the readers to Remember what their forefathers, their forebears in the faith, had done through faith by remembering that their predecessors withstood their trials. There were anti-Christian forces in the past, just like they were facing in the present, and as we've looked at this book uh, before, likely to increase in the future for them. These anti-Christian forces employed insults, reproach, affliction, persecution. But as these Christians faced this, what was the focus of their thought? Was it on the persecutors? Was it on the force of the opposition? I'm sure they thought about that some. It would not be natural or human not to. But it wasn't the greatest thing in their mind, was it? What was the greatest thing in their mind? They thought of Christ, and in particular, they thought of His great example, and they thought of the great grace of Christ which would sustain them as they participated together in Christ's sufferings. That's what helped them to overcome their fear, the fear of the thing itself, the fear of failing in the force of such a thing by focusing on Christ 
and their fellowship with Him in Christ's sufferings. Do we know anything of that ourselves, brethren? That's the question. This here was the testimony of this Christian congregation. Not perfect, with many difficulties, trials, circumstances, but the testimony of an enduring, persevering congregation in the midst of affliction to whom the author was here writing. Well, then that brings us in the second place to future receiving. Future receiving, verses 36 through 37. If the present were to involve suffering as it would for them, as it does for us, Christians then and Christians now are able to know that the future involves receiving. Present suffering, but future receiving. We can look forward as they could look forward to receiving all that God has promised to those who trust in Him. Is yet another way in which Christians are truly countercultural in whatever day they may be called to live, be it the first century or the 21st century. What does the world generally say? What does the world say today? It's buy now and pay later, isn't it? Give me everything now, and um, I'll try and figure out a way to pay for it sometime. What is it that the Christian says? What's characteristic of faith in Christ as pilgrims as we walk through this world? Sacrifice now. Suffer now. And receive later. Sacrifice now. Suffer now. Receive later. The future orientation, as we might say, the future part, perspective of the Christian faith is one of the great themes and emphases of the book of Hebrews. And here we see why that is. The knowledge of what is stored up for us as believers is to strengthen us, to empower us in our present trials. This is the point of the very definition of faith that we'll come to, Lord willing, when we get to Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews 11 verse 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, of course, this perspective is dominant, prevalent throughout all of Scripture. It's prevalent, therefore, amongst all the professing people of God down through all the generations. It's this perspective that gives boldness to Christians in the midst of suffering. How is it that Christians can display great fortitude and bravery and boldness as the apostles did, as many others have done since then? They do so in the sure knowledge of a glorious future that will be theirs. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5.1, we know, brother and sister, can you say that this morning? If you're a Christian, you can. 
we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. The Apostle Peter wrote to Christians under trial, you remember. 1 Peter 1, verses 4 and 5. He speaks to them of an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded. You will receive it. It is there and it will be kept for you. And you are being kept for it, Christian, this morning. And God's promise will not fail in either part. You will not get to heaven and find that it's not there. And heaven will not have its great reward. And every Christian for whom Christ died will not be there to receive it. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Why so? Because we are citizens of heaven. As we were thinking at prayer meeting last Wednesday evening. We are citizens of heaven even now. That's why we're able to grasp the reality of that. Things that we have already begun to enjoy in part, in down payment, even in the midst of present trouble and difficulty, but which will be ours in glorious totality and consummation on that last great day. Revelation 7, verse 16. It speaks of believers in the glory above. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Brethren, can you, can you preach on a text too often? Can you cite a text too often? I trust you cannot. This is a favorite phrase of mine from the Scriptures. God will wipe every tear from our eyes, whatever the cause however many there may have been, not one will He not wipe away from our eyes. Isn't that a great encouragement? You will receive. The author of Hebrews especially locates our hope in the return, of course, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Verse 37. We'll think about this much more, Lord willing, next week. But for this morning, Hebrews 10.37 says, Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. Whilst we wait for that, we are to recognize that, as the author of Hebrews has already told us over and over again, it's not that Jesus is not with us at all, and we must wait to receive this in the future. He is present with us spiritually even now though on that last great day He will be with us in the fullness of all that God has purposed and promised for us. This is what the author has been teaching throughout his letter, that when Christ ascended to the glory, 
even as the great high priest of His people, having offered that once-for-all sacrifice. He didn't do so to become inaccessible to us, so that we are cut off from Him until that day of future receiving. He did so so that He might become even more accessible to us, even ahead of that glorious future receiving. Yes, He is bodily absent from us, but He's spiritually present. And therefore, we wait for our King to return. Yes, in the picture of the parables of the Gospels, the King returning from the far country, we wait for Him to consummate in glory His kingdom. But as we do so, we know for sure that He is coming because He is spiritually present with us now. And we therefore serve Him even as He enables us while we wait, whilst we look forward and upward to the future with hope and joyful expectation. Brothers and sisters, there may be a thing since January 1st, we're not very far in, are we? We're January 7th. There may be things that have drawn your eyes down to the difficulties of this world. And they're not necessarily just to be simply ignored or denied or uh, take that stoic um, perspective to. We are to be responsible in such things. But most of all, we are still to raise our eyes, raise our heads upward and forward. What does Paul say? I do not consider present affliction to be compared with the surpassing glory which will be ours. That's why Christians never simply tolerate their circumstances like the Stoic did. We're not just resigned, oh, well, this is how it is. I can't do anything about it. You just have to wait till it comes to an end. But in the midst of it, we can be enlivened by this mighty hope. And yet, as we do so, there is always that danger, isn't there? Always that temptation. That's why the author here addressed these various different groups with a different pastoral approach, exhortation, challenge sympathy, inspiration even, because Christians still face that real danger of abandoning, the t of abandoning the faith in the midst of such opposition. You see, the Scripture says, O oh, death, where is your sting? What is the answer to that? It's one thing to issue the challenge. Oh, death, where is your sting? It can only be issued in reality and in true defiance of the power of death, in the power of the resurrection of Christ. Apart from Christ, death is mortally ruinous to body and soul. Do you know that? Do you realize that? Do you understand that? 
it's one of the most difficult things to stand at a graveside and cannot say in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection of the dead. But for a believer, though there may be the sadness of temporary parting, that is the great defiance of death in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection of the dead. In the sure and certain hope of that final receiving, that future receiving of all that God has purposed and promised for the Christian. And that then explains this writer's urgency about this matter of perseverance in the faith. He says, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. May God grant it to each one of us. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we often find ourselves in trials and difficulties, maybe not the physical sufferings and persecution that other brethren have to face, but nevertheless still real in their degrees of difficulty that You appoint for us. We pray that You would minister to our souls even this morning the great encouragement of Christ, that You would remind us and help us to remember Your sustaining, enabling grace, how You have enabled us to exercise that faith which is our great responsibility and to not shrink back encourage us in this year that lies ahead, we pray in Your providence to press on, even in whatever circumstances You appoint for us, so that we might stand firm, and that we might stand firm with others who are so afflicted, even to Your great glory. And so at last, together with all of Your professing church, we might receive the consummate kingdom on that last great day. Hear us then, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.